Acts chapter 18 is where we're at. And if you have a pew Bible, I believe these are the same page nations or whatever that's called. So if you need a page number. Yes, 1333. Actually, I have 1334 for verses 24 through 28. So 1334. I'm just going to own it. It is... It is um, my fault. I was writing this message, well, at least this version of the message, beginning at 9.20 last night <laughs> at the uh, after our pastor's retreat in Lewiston. And it's my fault because I approached this passage wrong earlier in the week. Uh, I've prayed from time to time that I wouldn't have this fault when I approach scripture and sermon writing. But I did this past week because the Bible is about Jesus. (laughs) And if you've been here for a while, you know that's something I hold very dear. Well, earlier in the week, I looked at this passage and I said, what does this say about Apollos? (laughs) And no wonder I was feeling uneasy about it all weekend. But because, again, as I said, I started writing last night, I don't have a slideshow for you. So let's dive right in, though. Why don't we stand in honor of reading and hearing uh, the Word of God, if you're able to stand. And let's read verses 24 to the end of the chapter of Acts chapter 18. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, well-versed in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and was fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught accurately about Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue when Priscilla and Aquila heard him. They took him in and explained to him the way of God more accurately. When Apollos resolved to cross over to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. On his arrival, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. For he had powerfully refuted the Jews in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth that you have preserved for us in the book of Acts about this situation. Help our hearts and our minds to know more fully about you. Give us the revelation that Priscilla and Aquila were able to give to Apollos. If we haven't grasped the truth that Apollos had to grasp, help us to grasp that today. Give us a fresh surge of hope and peace found in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that you would get me out of the way and say what it is that you desire. I pray that you would have your way among us, that we would respond accordingly to all the things you would tell us in this time together. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Here is what is at stake in this passage. Who is Jesus and what is he here for? How we answer those questions decides just what sort of Christianity we practice. Who is Jesus? And what is he here for? 
Thinking about Apollos in this passage, eh, interesting. Giving kudos to Priscilla and Aquila, sure, great. But the Bible is about Jesus. Who is Jesus? What is he here for? This passage tells us three things today. If you take notes, our three primary movements is A, the Bible is about Jesus. B, John was about Jesus. And C, our task is to point to Jesus. First, the Bible is about Jesus. And we see this as we're introduced to Apollos in this passage. The passage seems to be taking place as Paul, as we discussed last week, is returning home from this second missionary journey. That's the third one. Uh, there we go. There's the second one. He is returning home. He was in Ephesus, but then he went all the way back to Jerusalem. He was going up to Antioch. And where we last left our hero, he was in the Galatia, Phrygia area up here. So we discussed that last week. He had been asked actually by the Ephesians to stay longer, if you remember. But he had to make it back in time to Jerusalem for a feast. What feast it was, why he had to keep it. I talked about that last week, so I'm not going to unpack all that again. You're welcome. Then, again, Paul went back up to Antioch. This was the church that Paul had always launched out from to embark on his missionary journeys. And then he started heading out on his third journey. And so while this is all taking place, as Paul is returning to Jerusalem, going to Antioch, Luke gives us a snapshot of what's happening in Paul's absence. Again, beginning in verse 24 through the beginning of 25, we see, Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, well-versed in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and was fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught accurately about Jesus. And we'll pause right there. The way this is worded and the way Apollos is introduced, let's not overlook some pomp and circumstance that seems to be underlying the passage. He's given an introduction, and in some ways it could remind us of someone else. If you have a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. Let's look at just a passage there. Actually, our friend from Britain read it. Page 1151. And we... we it sounds like the way Matthew words the coming of someone else, how Apollos is introduced. We see in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. So Apollos came to Ephesus. John the Baptist came to the wilderness of Judea. And coming with Apollos is quite the glowing testimony. Back in our passage, he is a Jew. He's one of the chosen race, coming to a Gentile town with a synagogue. We heard about that back when Paul first visited, that there was a synagogue in Ephesus. He was, quote, a native of Alexandria. Now, some of you know Alexandria in the Roman Empire was only second to Rome. So it's like in our day and age, if, if we heard, and he came from L.A. or from New York City. Uh, I swear those two Cities are always competing for the biggest metropolis in the U.S., but you get the picture. This guy was 
a native of Alexandria, a big Jewish settlement there. Many believe that this is probably where Joseph and Mary went when they went to Egypt. It's known for the world's largest library and most infamously probably burnt up in Apollos' lifetime. His origins in Alexandria likely served him well education-wise. Back in our passage, we were told that he was an eloquent. The word would be more learned man. He was well-versed. The actual word is, I'll let Dean correct me, but I believe it's dinatos, uh, which means powerful. He was very powerful in the scriptures, well-studied. You know, this sounds like Paul, to be honest. Furthermore, our passage says he had been instructed. Instructed is actually the Greek word where we get the word catechism. Instructed in the way of the Lord, which is also a phrase used for John the Baptist. John was to prepare the way of the Lord. And Apollos uh, was instructed in the way of the Lord. He was also fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught accurately about Jesus. This is, like I said, a glowing testimony. If a disciple could be told about instead of shown, as we are shown often in the gospel accounts, this would be it. I mean, I could put John, Peter, and Paul in the place of Apollos in that paragraph and get a similar biography. If Apollos would outdo John, in fact, I would say Apollos could probably outdo John and Peter as far as background in the faith is concerned, because we're comparing fishermen with an educated, born and bred, privileged man here. Now, the words fervent in spirit, back in our uh, Acts chapter 18, it is argued that um, if there is to be made mention here of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in his preaching, or if it just means he was more spirited, I think the latter is more the case. And what we should note, too, is that despite the glaring oversight that Apollos has, that this passage is going to fill us in on, what Apollos was missing, nevertheless, Apollos was still well-versed in the Scriptures, and he spoke, spoke and he taught accurately about Jesus, because the Bible is about Jesus. Now, Apollos only had the Old Testament, but this didn't stop Jesus when he was teaching the disciples on the road to Emmaus. In fact, if you want to turn to Luke 24, verse 27, I'll turn there real quick. <clears throat> Page 1270. Luke 24, verse 27 says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was written in all the scriptures about himself. So Jesus said to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, the Bible is about Jesus. The Old Testament did not stop Jesus later when he appeared to the disciples in the same chapter over on verse 44. It says, Jesus said to them, these are the words I spoke to you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. The Bible is about Jesus, Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Apollos 
wherever he had been converted. In Acts 2, we were told that at Pentecost that there were some listeners in verse 10 that were from Egypt, which is where Alexandria is. Uh, so it is possible that Egypt, whoever was there from Egypt heard the gospel at Pentecost and took it back. And maybe Apollos was converted that way. Maybe Apollos was already a Jew and at Jerusalem during the time of Pentecost. However he heard it, he knew that the Bible was about Jesus. Yet it could be that Apollos heard it from someone else. We find out this back in our primary passage of Acts chapter 18, uh, the end of verse 25, which says he knew only the baptism of John. Another connection to John the Baptist. See, Apollos showed up in Ephesus like John the Baptist showed up in Judea. Both of them were instructed or were preparing the way of the Lord. And now we hear that Apollos only knew the baptism of John. When John the Baptist makes differentiation between his baptism and the baptism of the coming one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit, John's baptism was one of repentance. He was calling people to inner holiness, inner righteousness. Much like many of our Christian traditions today, the Judaism of John and Jesus' day seemed to be, do these practices, say these prayers, attend these feasts, be part of these communities, and then you're as good to go as far as God is concerned. But John was preaching, no, you're not. You can't do all these things on the outside, but remain filthy on the inside. Repent, which is good. This is what Apollos was preaching. And he must have been preaching about Jesus in some way. Again, we were told that he spoke and taught accurately about Jesus. It could have been that Apollos preached that Jesus said he was the Messiah. That Jesus preached a moral purity like the Sermon on the Mount. That followed the same sort of repentance message that John preached. He even could have been preaching about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Maybe he is even his ascension. But apparently he was lacking something. Verse 26 in our passage says, And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, uh, Apollos did. But then when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him in and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Priscilla and Aquila had a starting point, a launching pad with John. It's, well, you're, you believe in the baptism of John. Let me tell you a little more about that, Apollos. Because like I did earlier in the week, so Apollos or so any preacher can lose the forest for the trees. And you're like, you do that every Sunday. But just have a little sympathy for a while. Um, for someone stuck on John's baptism, it can become this and only this. Repent, be holy, start living better, more holy lives. And while that was a part of John's message, John was about Jesus. John was about Jesus. John was so much about Jesus that he couldn't help himself. Why do we, we remember him as we do, his full title, John the Baptist? Why? Because he baptized people. And at his at his thing, doing his baptism, what was he saying? 
Again, our friend from England, uh, Philip, read it for us from Matthew, but let's also hear it from the same author of Acts, Luke. He records John saying in Luke 3.16, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John was about Jesus. He had a very bad church growth policy. (laughs) What did he do? Hey, welcome to the first John the Baptist church. Hey, follow Jesus. Go to his church. (laughs) I'm here for a season, but follow Jesus. This is literally what he does. John the evangelist, one of the disciples of Jesus, not to be confused with John the Baptist, but the evangelist records in his gospel account this occurrence. John 1, 35-37 says, The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. And when he saw Jesus walking by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. And when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. To make a contemporary picture, it would be like if in our day you showed up at my church and I said, That life center down there is the best place on planet Earth. You should go. Only except John had good reasons to shoo people away from his following because the Messiah was walking the planet. (laughs) It's the best place for the faithful to be under his teaching. John was about Jesus. So this had to be an easy launching point for Priscilla and Aquila to add to what Apollos already knew. See, to to be baptized into John's baptism is to answer the calls of repentance, to repent of sins, to say no to giving in to sin, to agree with God's judgments that we are in sin is only the bad news though, right? And again, it seems Apollos had this down. You know, I might even suppose that Apollos may have had a firm understanding of justification by faith through grace. That is, Trusting in Jesus to be accounted righteous. Because this is conditional on paper. It's it's transactional. It's the, the judge, God, declaring us guilty and then the paperwork being filed on our behalf and then the judge reading, oh, well, Apollos here, Kevin, Dean here, they, they all filed the Jesus clause. <laughs> they're, they're stating faith in Jesus, so we're not going to apply the punishment to them, but we'll apply the punishment to Jesus. Sins are now forgiven. Price is paid. But even that is not enough. That's not the full gospel. We read about this last week, but the new covenant is transformative too. See, we we no longer need to be taught the law if we have it on our hearts. It moves beyond who I am conditionally before God to who I am on the inside. It's transformational. Some theologians, so they can earn their PhDs, come up with words. And they'll say, God's righteousness is imputed to me, but it's also imparted. It's imputed means it declares me righteous. God sees Jesus when he sees me, but it's also imparted. Suddenly, I begin to practice his righteousness. And this only happens by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So here it is in a nutshell, Apollos, Jesus does more. (laughs) Jesus does more, Apollos. 
Like, that's greater news. Jesus is good news, but this is greater news. <laughs> Isn't it greater news? Jesus moves you from, hey, repent, baptism of John, to here's how. <laughs> I'm in you. Jesus does more. And with all of Apollos' glowing reputation, with all that he has going for him, Apollos is humble. He's teachable. I love that. He receives what he's taught. And he more further fulfills his discipleship from John because John was about Jesus. So Apollos knows his task is also to point people to Jesus, as is our task. We read in verse 27 of our uh, Acts 18, when Apollos resolved to cross over to Achaia, to Greece, uh, this is more specifically Corinth, if you read Acts 19, verse 1. So, I know this is Paul's uh, journeying, but Apollos decided to go over to Corinth, which is Greece. Uh, Achaia is the Roman name of the province. Um, this is where Paul had been before Ephesus, then Jerusalem and Antioch. It says, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there in Corinth to welcome him. So this could have kind of cut the small talk and break the ice. Nobody had ever met Apollos. He obviously had some gifts, and it would be a lot easier than starting fresh and building trust. But if Corinth received words from people like Achilla and Priscilla, who had also been in Corinth, hey, we know Apollos, we fixed his brains, he knows everything now. (laughs) Um, He'll serve you well as a teacher. Listen to him. Accept him and receive him. And we find out that he was, if you read on, it says, On his arrival, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Uh, I believe we lived in a closed canon world that nobody is writing scripture. Either that or nobody should be. So, I think it's hard for us to grasp, but just to give you a picture of what Paul or Peter or Apollos had to do. It's as if I got to try up, if I got up here and I tried to argue with you all the reasons why Jesus was back in the flesh already walking around on planet Earth. That's kind of the stigma, the like, what do you think you're doing? That It's that sort of thing. The Jewish people had this belief in the Messiah. They had their scriptures from the Old Testament about the Messiah. And these Christians were saying, he's here. He's come. He's walked among us. His mission was to die for our sins. He did that. He rose again. He's fulfilled the new covenant. And Luke's making clear that Apollos did this a lot more effectively than I am. (laughs) He powerfully refuted the Jews in public debate. Apollos makes this mark in Corinth. He was a rock star. He was a Billy Graham of his time. And we see that Paul actually, when Paul actually writes Corinth to correct them. You know, often charismatic leaders, uh, whether they know it, accept it, or discourage it, it seems they draw people, and some Corinthians were getting uh, quite content to just continue the line. Like, there were disciples of John the Baptist, there were disciples of Jesus, and whether they labeled themselves or not, apparently some disciples of Apollos sounded good. Paul writes to Corinth, apparently after it's growing in number, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he writes, My brothers, some from 
Chloe's household. So Corinth is so big that there's multiple what we would call congregations cropping up. So they didn't have First Baptist Church and the Nazarene Church and the Friends Meeting House. In fact, this is what seems to be Paul's going to be arguing against is sectarianism. But those who were meeting at Chloe's household as opposed to Bob, because Bob's a good Roman-sounding name, but Chloe's house have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. Individuals among you are saying, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, which is Peter, or I follow Christ. You know, I I remember when Christy and I still lived in Moscow, Idaho, not Russia. Um, We lived there a year and a half um, before you guys had a wild hair and decided to hire a 23-year-old pastor. And while Christy and I lived there one day, I think we went down to Lewiston one afternoon. She had a dentist appointment or something. And I was studying in Bible college um, how us new kids do it by sitting at Starbucks, having my laptop out, doing all of my classes online. And I had a few books beside me. I had my Bible, and then I had some theology books and textbooks. And there was this couple next to me, a man and a woman. Uh, You don't know them. I don't even know where they're at now. But the woman says, those are some nice books you have there. Just make sure you read the top one more than the other ones, referring to the Bible, of course. And I responded, of course, and we chatted a bit. And then I asked them, so do you go to church around here? And they said, well, no, but we do read our Bibles, though. And then they asked, have you ever heard of Kenneth Copeland? And uh, went on to encourage me to look into him. I actually hadn't up to that point, and I didn't really make a pursuit to. I'm not ashamed to say now that I've heard and read up on him enough Since then, and all of his private jet planes and the load of money and prosperity gospel preaching he does, Jesus wants you to be rich. Now I find that exchange back then a little bit ironic. (laughs) Here were these people telling me to know my Bible more than my other books when they knew their Bibles as presented to them from Kenneth Copeland in their homes, and they had apparently yet to join a local body of believers. Apollos didn't show up in Corinth to preach in his own name or to baptize in his own name, but in the name of Jesus. That is our task, to point people to Jesus. The Bible is about Jesus. John was about Jesus, and our task is to point people to Jesus. So, who is Jesus and what is he here for? What does this passage say about who he is? He is the fulfillment of Scripture. He fulfills over 350 prophecies. You know, if a person fulfilled one prophecy, I'd be amazed. He fulfills 350 of them over that. He is on every page in the Old Testament in the way of foreshadowing types when he was typified in the Old Testament. Maybe you remember in Numbers 21 when Moses made a fiery serpent and he lifted it up in the desert as the people were being bitten by venomous snakes. Moses, told by God, made this serpent and said, Look at this serpent and be saved. So Jesus quotes this passage in John 3 and he says, That's who I am. That is what I do. I'm lifted up on a pole. Look to me. Be saved. Not just prophecies or foreshadowing types. The Bible is about Jesus in titles in the Old Testament. Son of God. Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. Emmanuel, which means God is with us. 
The Bible is also about Jesus and what we call Christophanies. Times in the Old Testament where Jesus actually showed up. That's why Jesus says in John 8.58, Truly, truly, I tell you, Jesus declared, before Abraham was born, I am. And he was and he is. Two verses prior in John 8, John said, Abraham did see my day. How so? One thought is this crazy guy named Melchizedek. (laughs) Look it up in Genesis 14. Abraham is successful in a war and out of nowhere a priest. A king of Salem, Salem meaning peace. So the king of peace, we've never heard that title before, prince of peace, shows up out of nowhere and Abraham decides to have some bread and wine with him. Hmm, I wonder if there was somewhere else where people have bread and wine with God in the flesh. Who is this guy? Abraham gives him a tenth of everything. Hebrews says, Hebrews chapter 7, Genesis 14, do your homework. Hebrews seems to have this, maybe Jesus. (laughs) Who is Jesus? The long prophesied about, typified and named entitled, and in fact appearing God in the flesh of the Old Testament. What is he here for? To save the world. To fulfill prophecies such as, I will write the laws on people's heart. Or to fill prophecies such as, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. Who is Jesus? And what is he here for? What does our passage say? John was about Jesus. And he said that someone, he said that Jesus was someone greater than John. You know, Luke records Jesus saying of John, I tell you, among those born of woman, there was no one greater than John. (laughs) But John says there is someone coming who is mightier than he, greater than he, who will baptize with the Holy Spirit, who will immerse people in the Holy Spirit. You and I will be, can be, and should be filled with God himself by Jesus baptizing us into him that's who jesus is and that's what he's here for so then our task like john like apollos is to point people to jesus because if jesus is god the savior the prophesied messiah and if he's here for nothing less than to save the world to save us from sins to fill us with himself so that we might be like him why shouldn't we point people to him You know, it was a great retreat yesterday that Christy and I went to, but there was a somber note sounded by one of the speakers, something that was already mentioned here today, something we all know but may not like to admit. We live in what seems to be an ever-darkening world. We know it. I like to be optimistic, but in a world that celebrates sins by parading down the streets or that cowers under the fear of a disease, or that lives in a polarizing political war, that murders babies by the thousands every day, I can admit that we live in a dark world. But let us never forget. Let us never overlook, underestimate, or shirk back from the reality of what we have to share. God has come in the flesh. God has saved us by His death. God has risen again to show that He is God and God can dwell 
in us with His Spirit. God has saved the world and God still saves the world. Our task is to point people to Jesus, not because He is our only hope, but because He is the hope. He's not the only hope as in, it's dire, by golly, I hope everyone gets it. The world's bursting at the seams and if people miss Him, it's hopeless. That's not how Paul sees it. Jesus does more. He's not just the Savior of the world, if just could be put in that sentence. Jesus does more, Paul says, quite triumphantly in Romans 8, I consider that our present sufferings are not comparable to the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not by its own will, but because of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until the present time. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. That's who Jesus is, living hope. And so I dare say when Apollos could move from you must repent to here's how, it added more power to his already great command of the Scriptures about Jesus. Do you have that power? That's who Jesus is. That's what He's here for. He moves you from repent and be holy on the inside to here's the power to do it. You have God inside you. Amen? Let's pray. Father, sometimes as, even as Christians, even knowing our scriptures, we seem to live in the Romans 7 world. Maybe it's just me. Where I know the bad things that I shouldn't do, but I still do them. I know the good things that I should do, but I don't do them. But Father, you didn't, come to this worth earth to walk among us to be brutally murdered to die for us and to rise again to make us feel guilty you didn't subject yourself to all that pain and agony for just us to feel like we need to repent but we don't have the power to do it rather whenever you ascended you told your disciples to wait they waited and then you poured out the holy spirit on them And that Holy Spirit is the very power that you lived by, the righteousness that you live by. And that power that rose you from the grave is available to us. Father, we have professed our faith in you. And if we haven't, I pray that we would do that right now. And we have professed and we have invited you to come and live inside of us. That's an invitation to the Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, please do your work of righteousness in us. Help us to not only know that we need to repent, but help us to know and remind us every day we have the power to do it. Don't let the enemy fool us. Father, wake us up every second whenever we're about to enter into temptation and say, I've given you the power to avoid this. And help us to listen to your beckoning. Not because, oh no, we're going to miss out on something good, but no, you have something better.
it is so much better whenever we crave the pure goodness of who you are and your glory as opposed to craving the small things that the devil tricks us into thinking are to be more desired than you. So, Father, I pray that we would walk in the Spirit and not by the flesh. And we ask and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.